Hi, I'm Jess Wiener. I'm a cultural expert, and I am here with my friend Jackie Cooper on A Touch of Truth. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper, the Senior Advisor and Chief Brand Officer at Edelman. With over 35 years of business experience in brand, creative, and personalized strategy. On Touch of Truth, you'll find wisdom from some of the most respected, trusted, and successful people on the planet. And it might just make you a little more successful and a lot happier. I'd kind of like people to know a little bit about who you are, Jess, because you've been on this incredible journey mm-hmm. from being an author and a self-esteem expert, and that's taken you into the most incredible halls of offices, the White House, uh, brands, different companies. You've changed the shape of Barbie. You've changed Mm -hmm. the journey of Dove and the self-esteem fund and the self-esteem campaign for real women. You've worked for Warner Brothers. You work for Nike. You're just now Slightly awkwardly for me, a podcast queen, and here I am trying to interview you on this podcast. And you've done all of this with this incredible path of truth and heart. Mm. You have so much heart with everything that you do, and you've been so open about the things that have given you challenges in your life. But I'm hoping in this podcast, I know you're so polished and you're so brilliant at doing this stuff, but I'm hoping we can go a little deeper in this podcast because that is the point. Hello, Honesty. How are you right now? At this time, in this place, in your life, business and personal We wrap everything up so well for clients and for brands and for solutions. But you, Jess, have been on the most extraordinary journey where you are now so successful and called on by so many companies around the world. And so I guess in your personal life, in your professional life, it's an extraordinary time for you. And in this first segment where we kind of go, well, hello, honesty. <laughs> in this first segment, it's like, how are you right now? How are you in this in this sort of in this time and in this place? How mm. actually are you in the very real meaning of that question? Yeah. Well, being honest with you actually is easy because we have a friendship of, you know, almost two decades together. And you've been seeing my story, my potential, my passion, my career. You've been a champion for me for a long time. So I was looking forward deeply to this level of intimacy for this conversation. Um, And the answer to how I am really is I'm fractured right now. I, um, you know, I live in the U.S. and I work in the empowerment space for women and girls and femmes. And I have for 27 years. And we are in unprecedented times in my experience on two levels for me. One is I'm living in a country that is repeatedly restricting and taking away rights for women and, and, and femmes and, and in a way that is terrifying. So there's the reality of what's happening in culture. And as a cultural fluency expert and somebody who advises on trends and insights happening in culture, I'm living in a very surreal space. And then personally, I'm deeply impacted by that because how do I get to the truth of empowering women and girls if I have clients or partners that don't want to, quote unquote, take a political side, when for me, none of this is political, it's human. 
and it's human rights based. So I feel fractured in the reality of the world that I'm living in right now. I'm very present to my privilege. I still have incredible access to rooms of decision makers where I'm trying to influence in a progressive and positive way more resources for women, girls, and and femmes, but it's very, um, it's really deeply terrifying right now. And so I have this two sides of the fracturedness for me is I am an eternal optimist. I couldn't do this work for almost 30 years without believing that there's hope and change possible for the way we represent, treat, and engage marginalized communities. But uh, it feels like a really incredible challenge also because there's legislation being passed in certain states in the United States where my diversity and inclusion education is being censored. I had my first experience uh, with a brand doing a corporate training program on inclusivity that had to be nipped and tucked because of legislation in the state of Florida that prohibits uh, corporate conversations around diversity and inclusion. And we've heard about that as lore, that that was going to happen, but it's happened. That law has been passed and it had corporate consequences for a client of mine. And we had to really tend to the material. And so it's surreal to be an educator, an advocate, a cultural person in that space, and also a woman living in this time. So I just, I feel like there's little parts of me all over the place right now. This makes me so sad. Um, <sighs> And it makes me want to kind of stop because I think, like, I'm half American, so I was brought up between here in London and New York. I don't have any family other than the family I made with my husband here. Mm -hmm. All my family is in the U.S. And obviously the company that I work for, Edelman, is headquartered in, in the U.S. And all my heritage from being three years old, I have very vivid memories of my mum taking me back to the States and seeing mm -hmm. my family. And I had so much excitement when we used to get off the plane, right the way through to having my own kids and my own daughters who are now grown up. So much excitement when you go through passport control and I'm back home, like to my second right. home. And I don't feel like that anymore. I just feel really sad about what I see and this notion of the US being a trailblazer for liberation and freedom that has gone back so much. And you yeah. talk about creative fluidity or cultural fluidity or societal fluidity, and we are going back and back and back. So yeah. uh, this is very sad and this is very challenging. And I also try to be optimistic. I mean, mm -hmm. I have a gloomy side, so I'm trying to be <laughs> optimistic. And my optimism actually, Jess, lies in some of the stuff that we know together, which is the power of brands and companies to make change. And right. we know that the consumer in the world has hope that companies can step up where government fails. Right. Right. And we've seen that, like with Dove, where Dove has not only championed imagery, but actually championed advocacy and legislation across the US. We are changing legislation with the Crown Act, where right. traditionally states have had legislation that, in, that says you come to work as a black woman with your hair in a natural state, you can be sent home and told to groom your hair. That's not acceptable. So mm -hmm. changing legislation with the Crown Act coalition with Dove is beyond advocacy, we are actually making change, right? So what do you think we can do? Is there, 
you know, we have to be honest about what women in the US actually want. You know what Correct. women in the US yeah. really want. And it is not what we are seeing on the Hill. It is not what we are oh, seeing no. in politics. It is not what we are seeing with your having to have your wings clipped in a meeting in Florida. That's a terrible situation. Right. Well, what I will say is you're right. There are companies like Unilever who've been and Dove in particular as a brand who've been on the progressive side of working on legislation. What I will say, though, since we are being truthful, is that this is a reckoning for brands and businesses right now to really look at what they're saying to their consuming audience and what they're doing behind the scenes from a corporate lens. Because, uh, you know, a lot of companies have been revealed to be giving dollars to the factors that are inhibiting women and yet coming out with all these equity campaigns and all this talk about diversity and inclusion. And yet they're actually funding the very entities that are looking to restrict that. I think that's the 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 bottom line with Gen Z in particular. And I think this faction of millennial workforce as well, which is they're peeking behind the curtain to say, look, you can't be an organization that says we stand for promoting women in work and we want more women in senior leadership. And yet we're corporately going to give dollars that's going to take away her right to choose when she has a family. Because that actually does impact how many women are in the corporate world and how long they stay. And we know that. All of our research shows, right, that women opt out when they're usually creating a family. They have roles in their lives that have them tend to be a caregiver. And then coming back into the workforce is really challenging. So you've got these two conversations happening, one around equity and diversity in the workforce, and yet you've got some behind-the-scenes you know, financial contributions to forces that are directly opposed to what you're saying you want to do. And I think if we're being truthful right now, I look at and work with brands who want to have a more organic and authentic conversation with women. And I actually was on a call yesterday with a client who said, you know, well, how much of a stand can we really take in this kind of post Roe v. Wade world where they've just overturned uh, the right for a woman to choose her own reproductive health? And I said, if you don't take a stand on behalf of a woman's right to decide on her body autonomy, then every marketing campaign you put out about the empowerment of women is bullshit. Full stop. So reckon with that for a second. You think body autonomy is political? It's a basic human right for a woman or a girl to choose when and how and if she wants to reproduce. Like, And so we're having some really, really challenging conversations for those that are not where some of the brands are that you're talking about, where they have maybe for the first time are really reckoning with their public conversation and their real private business dealings. And, and I think we, brands have to take a, be more brave and take a risk to get on the right side of this issue. Or I think, and quite frankly, I hope that some of it blows back up from female consumers and, and folks that'll say, you know, listen, I do rely on you to take a stand on the issues I care about. But at the end of the day, you have to be honest about who you're really voting for. Problem is though, Jess, is that I think we have either paralysis right now of, of companies, right? Because they're scared of doing the wrong thing or passive, you know, they're passive or paralyzed, right? Yeah. And the companies that, that step up and say, I'm going to stand for something and it might not be loved by everybody, and it might polarize, but at least you know that I'm real. At least you know that I'm authentic because right. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to I'm going to be truthful to a thing. 
I think, you know, we have data coming out of our ears here that says that is what brands need to do for consumers to trust you. Right. I don't trust you if you're just going to flim flam and not show transparently what you believe and not show transparently what's happening in the boardroom and not show transparently how you're treating your employees and not show transparently how you're treating your suppliers. You've got to step up and you've got to take that curtain down. And there's no division now between corporate behavior and brand behavior and consumer behavior and business behavior. And to your point on Gen Z, that generation is going to ask the most searching questions of all, right? And they're going to say, come on, you have to play a a part in making Mm -hmm. this planet better. And you have to play a part in making everything more positive. And it's the sort of sad strand that we've landed on here because it's such a challenge and it's a unprecedented situation. None of us who are kind of grown up in this business world expected to be dealing with this scenario in the US, right? None of us really expected that we would be going backwards in this kind of this subject matter and to look at restrictions of human rights for women in this way. Did you ever imagine that this would ever happen? You know, quite frankly, I I did because I think living through, (laughs) living through the last, you know, I don't know, six years or so in watching the national conversation around LGBTQ plus individuals around, um, women. I, I feel like I, I was afraid and watching some districts, you know, getting redistricted and court seats changing. I think I had, you know, like some folks, a, a feeling that we may not be heading in that right direction. I think when I, when I think about it juxtaposed to the work that I do and, and we talk about empowerment all the time, I think we're in this empowerment paradox right now. We have women like, Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson at the highest levels of leadership for a Black woman in this country, right? And her daughter, that picture that went viral around the world during her confirmation hearings where her daughter is lovingly and proudly looking at her mom. I look at that picture and I think, oh my gosh, here is her mother ascended to some of the highest leadership in our country. And here is her daughter who has less rights than her grandmother had in a lot of ways. And so that empowerment paradox for me, I think, is what I'm most circling around. I mean, I do being a, being a, a, a student and a social scientist of looking at cultural trends. I know we go in cycles and I know that there is rebound from some of the extremes and the pendulum swings. I think what's maybe most challenging right now is. I don't feel a rebound happening in the way that that we desire it. And there's one thing I wanted to say really quickly to your point about it being a tough space for brands, which I 100% can appreciate and obviously have compassion for. But you and I also know there are human beings behind these brands. And this is the time, I think, if we take all the business talk out of it, this is the time for us as humans with power and privilege and access an opportunity to really reckon with how we leverage that and how we use that right now. And I think that's a personal decision before it becomes a business decision. Yeah, I I think, you know, when you do amazing work, if you think about the highlights in our careers, it's always been that there's been a believer in the company that has Mm -hmm. fallen in love and believed in the premise, whatever that might be, you know, um, we met so many years ago while we were working with Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen, which is yep. literally a lifetime ago, right? And, <laughs> it sure is. And that explosion of 
uh, teen fandom, which was both amazing, but also there was a, a vulnerable part to those uh, to those fans who needed a little bit of support and love, which the lovely dress Wiener could give support <laughs> and love to those those tweens, which we never ever heard that phrase before. That was the first <laughs> time uh, that we heard that, and then we went on to work on on Dove together, and that's been like what like seventeen years of a journey of watching. Yeah that self-esteem message be re-kind of created. We've reinvented it. We've had young girls across the world. I think it's something like 82 million girls worldwide have been educated through Dove workshops and Dove experiences. I mean, that's proper impact, which is incredible. So I'm moving on to the positivity of impact, Mm -hmm. Jess, because I believe that with all of this, there are people in those companies, as we've experienced, who believe in stepping up yep. and not just being a company that does product or service, but does impact and purpose. And 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 you gravitate to them and they gravitate to you. Yeah. So you have incredible influence in the wider sense of the word of being able to get these people to fall in love and trust you and feel safe with you that your recommendations culturally will only enhance where they come from and that's where we collide and we've worked together. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I I think being honest with our clients is really, really important because we're not yeah. in the schmoozy marketing conversation with our clients. We're in the, this is real, this is yeah. real, uh, this is real good, this is real bad, and this is the space <laughs> right. that you can right. go in, right? And you're very good at being very real with clients and making them hear things that may be a little bit uncomfortable. So being honest with them and giving them the truth has been really much, uh, you know, as I've seen working with you, has been very much part of how you've been able to build that narrative and build that faith. Yeah. The Truth Test. A few questions on truth from a self, human and brand perspective. Let's get into the individual of you yeah. a little bit. You've gone on this career track and for people who are sort of listening and thinking, wow, this is such an interesting career to be able to go into companies and advise them about culture and be real with them and put them on the right track and maybe tell them about stuff that they didn't even know. I wanted to ask the same three questions of everybody on this podcast, right? So one of the questions which sort of fits now with me asking is that for you to do all of this, can you tell us what do you think is the biggest gamble you ever took mm-hmm. in your life to get to where you are now? That's easy. It's it's building a career, talking to people truthfully around taboo topics back in the day. You know, I've been an entrepreneur for 27 years. I've never formally worked for anybody, um, except for at, I did actually have four days of employment at a retail company where, where, and this is a story I don't often tell, but where I was right out of college and I had, um, my experience in selling clothes was that when girls would have a meltdown about their body image in the store, in the dressing room, I would sit on the floor with them and we would talk about it and I would coach them. And then I would help them try to find clothes that fit their body. And we know I did all of my counseling in real time in the dressing rooms. And while I was doing that during my tenure, somebody stole a bunch of coats from the front of the store because I wasn't watching. So my time in retail was cut short, but those was like the only four days I was employed by anybody else. And then afterwards, you know, what I did was at 21 years old, decided to 
pursue and put together a career. And I can't say that I really thought I was gambling on being an entrepreneur or being a brand expert. Like I didn't have any of that language or vocabulary. I just knew that I cared about three things. I cared about having honest conversations with people. I loved advertising and brands and um, I loved that whole space, but I didn't know how to quite fit into it. So I knew that was a world I loved and responded to, didn't see myself or my friends reflected in. And then the last part was I'm a natural storyteller. I started as a playwright. I've been a public educator for a long time. So all of those things together, I took a gamble on making a career that included all of those things without ever really knowing what it was going to look like, which is, I think, the entrepreneur's journey. You know, you start in trying to solve a problem. And the problem I was trying to solve was I grew up with incredibly low self-esteem. I was in love with the media. I didn't see myself reflected in it and often wanted to figure out who was the gatekeeper and how do we change this? And I remember having those thoughts at 12. And then here I am, you know, I've kind of cobbled together a career path in which I've been able to write and speak and educate and advocate uh, for these issues. And it's been a, you know, it's like all entrepreneurs journeys. The gamble has been a really circuitous one. You know, I started when you and I met, I was writing an advice column for two mega celebrities. And I was trying to bring real advice to girls around the world who loved these stars, but had a lot of questions about growing up. I then wrote a column for 17. You then very graciously and lovingly championing my work brought me into Dove and made that connection for me. So now I had an opportunity to leverage what I knew from working with the actual consumer to bring that knowledge into a brand that wanted to start a very delicate conversation that quite frankly, at the time, Jackie, I don't feel like they had permission to do, right? That was our big conversation. It was like, you're a company that sells soap. How are you transferring to talk about self-esteem? And, you know, we built and put together with that brand the process of the permission. And the research yielded that permission from, from adults. So I always feel like, and then after that, my career just sort of spiraled into lots of brands coming who wanted to capture a little bit of that lightning in a bottle that we had with Dove. But what I've developed is a now a niche consultancy that does tell the truth most of the time and really in an, sometimes in uncomfortable ways, but oftentimes in ways that help elevate my brand partners and the people in it. The thing that I don't think I could have known was the real gamble was how much work, time, and effort it takes to self-fund a business because I don't come from a trust fund. I don't have a board of directors. I don't have investors in my business. I have gap financed every step of the way with the work that I've done. I've lived well beneath my means in order to finance my dream. And that's something I talk a lot about with young entrepreneurs as well. You know, I was selling my IP. My business is my brand, is my relationships. And that's a currency I've built over time and a gamble I took Maybe because I was so young, I didn't know it was a gamble. And I'm glad that I did it then and I didn't know. I don't know if I would have taken the same risks now if I had so much access to other people's careers. I think also because I grew up in a time pre-internet where I didn't know what anyone else was doing. I just knew what I needed to do and I had to build a career that mirrored my life's passions. But don't you think, my impression of you is that freedom's always been super important. I mean, it's Indeed. no secret that you have been offered extraordinary jobs. And as far as I know, um, some very <laughs> famous jobs. And as far as I know, you've turned down every single one, right? And, and been tempted at times, like, maybe I should do this. Maybe this would yeah. be an incredible move for me. And other people would sort of chew their own arm off to get into that. But the freedom ultimately yeah. has been really important to you. And you've chosen to continue to... 
as you say, self-finance and self-drive, and but be your own woman doing your own thing and being able to be in charge of every day yeah. what you do, right? That's been important. It's incredibly important. And freedom and flexibility are two values for me that are non-negotiable. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important for people to hear that because we get caught up in the hierarchy of achievement or how oh, you yeah. drive a career to be, well, who are you in that company and what is your title and what is your value? And it's like, well, your value should be what you feel you're doing every day because I bet you feel great in your heart every day. Even if the days are hard, you're striving for right. something that's true to yourself. And then the second thing is the impact of what you do. So if the impact is going to be greater because you are free to pivot however you want, with whoever you want, whenever you want, that is a great plus against the fear of, okay, I'm responsible for my own finance. I'm responsible for my own future. I'm responsible for making sure that there's food on the table and that I'm everything I need to be to my family and everything else. And yeah. I've, I've walked in both those shoes. I mean, it's no, I again, I, no secret. I, I sold my business to Edelman. It was really scary to sell my business. But what was so interesting when I sold one of my employees said, oh, you've sold, you've sold your soul and, you know, you've sold mm. your freedom. And I said, who thinks you're free when you're an entrepreneur? You're not free when you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you're, you're asking, you know, about freedom, but I'm not free to my, I have to answer to my clients. I have to answer to the bank. I have to answer yep. to my employees. That's not freedom. I'm, I'm, and now I have freedom in those areas. And yes, I'm an employee right. of a company, but there's nothing such as ultimate freedom and you're working in these situations because you have to deliver. So you just have to weigh up, I think, as an individual, how can you liberate your best self? Where's your best yeah. self going to come from, right? And you've maintained that path against all the odds. And now I think the industry and clients are kind of catching up with what you've known all this time because they mm. seem to be flooding in more and going, I actually really need to know about culture. I actually really need to know yeah. about empowerment, right? And I have a responsibility now to step into this space. So you, yeah. do you feel that you're getting much more demand from everybody right now? Do you oh, feel yeah. like there's less explanation about what you're doing? Yes, and which is which is both a blessing and a curse, right? Because um, I think just to speak really briefly to the uh, conundrum of an entrepreneur, right, is we eat what we kill. So we're hunting all the time. And I think for me, the freedom and flexibility is a non-negotiable value. And it comes with a cost because I have a staff and a team that I support and clients that I want to stay aligned with. And so when there's, you know, I also run into the tendency, and you and I've talked about this personally, of falling into the overwork, um, falling into the mindset that I'm only as much as what I'm doing or making or achieving and challenging that hustle culture piece, both as a woman in business, as a founder, as somebody with a public persona in the work that I do, that's been a very difficult terrain. I would say probably more so for me over the last, last six or seven years as my business has really tripled in its, in its size and in its output, right? And I've had the most profitable years of my business and I've had some of the most significant mental health challenges. Um, I mean, we all have going through what we've gone through, but even prior to the pandemic, that's when you, when I was wrestling about making decisions to go in-house somewhere and trying to see what the next level of business, you know, growth would be for me. I think the summer of 2020 changed a lot for the demand of my work with brands. I think the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, the conversations in the United States and around the world around 
the ongoing racial inequity and violence, but I think the pronounced attention to it, right? We know that brands went, oh my gosh, how do I respond to this? I've been laying dormant on my DNI policies and now people are going to be expecting me to talk about it. And and I had a lot of difficult, challenging conversations with a ton of brands who came to me for what I call SFSN. Sounds fabulous, signifies nothing. I had to turn down so much business because truthfully, at the end of the day, they didn't really want to do the work. They wanted to make sure they were safe from public ridicule. And that's not the business that I'm in. I'm an authenticity auditor. I'm a translator of cultural trends. It's not just, I'm not just an insights person who reports. I contextualize for my partners, right? And what you and I do together is then take some of those contextualizations and build business programs. I do that internally now for companies. I do that externally for marketing and advertising campaigns. So when I consider the growth of the interest in inclusivity, I have to really put on my BS detector and say like, are you willing to do the hard work? Because the way our conversation started, when you asked me how I really was, like, that is what I wrestle with. And I don't hide those conversations from my clients. We have them very openly. So I have to be the right leader for them and they have to be the right partner for me. Um, Thankfully, I have very long-term relationships that I'm proud of. Our relationship and Dove's for 17 years, longest partnership I've had in business, longer than my current marriage. I've only been married once, but you know, longer than my <laughs> marriage and, and a very significant relationship for me because it really shaped the course of my career. But I've worked with Mattel for going on 11 years and, you know, other brands for multiple years. And that for me is so fulfilling because while the business has been growing, it's been deepening. And I think when you're in the business I'm in, I want depth over breath. I want to really be able to stay the course for a while because the change we want to make, we know, takes time. It does take time. So going in and trying to help people gets me neatly, segues brilliantly (laughs) to my second question, which is... What is the worst meeting you've ever been in? Jackie! Um, Well... There have been a couple doozies. I will say I live and work in Los Angeles and I had some really uncomfortable meetings during the Me Too movement at its peak with individuals who are at the center of some particular lawsuits because they were working at places that I was helping to support. And I don't know that I've ever been so upfront and close to uh, conversations that were both triggering for me because it was, you know, we're talking of transgressions and behaviors that I find abhorrent. And then I'm there to try to help, you know, coach slash educate. And I know the truth of what's not being done. I'm trying to be very cautious so I don't get a lawsuit. But like, I would say for me, what's what made that meeting one of the worst meetings is because I really struggled with who to be in that meeting. Because again, the fractured part of me, right? The woman, activist, you know, civically engaged human that I am. And then the business job that I have to do, which is educating and advocating for people who might not be getting it. I mean, that's really what I am. I'm a, I'm an internal educator, you know, so I'm sitting with folks who've made those transgressions, who've made those deep mistakes and choices. And I'm trying to hold a space for that while moving the culture forward. And so I wrestled a lot with that. And I would say the same thing for Again, that summer of 2020, I had some very difficult conversations around race in America with white CEOs that were just completely indignant about their role and their need to be accountable. 
in that time. And there's one in particular. It's the only time I've ever done this. It was a Zoom meeting, thankfully. I was so filled with rage and sadness and 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 feeling a real block in this conversation. I had to literally shut my computer and get up and walk out in the middle of a meeting, which I've never done. But I couldn't be productive even through the screen in that moment because I was struggling with my own feelings and my own words. So honestly, I think for me, the worst meetings have been less about the subject matter of the meeting as much as it's been me reckoning with, um, you know, how to keep the business mind here and my personal mind here because it's, you know, I'm, I'm all of those things in one. It's quite amazing to me that we can be in business meetings with people who behave in ways that don't seem to have anything to do with the world. Like if you're if you're in a if you're in a job and you're leading a big company, why don't you understand the world? Or why do you understand why don't you understand how culture has moved and society has Correct. expectations? Like you just get up and read the papers and watch the the social feeds and hear the news and you can see that we are in a sea change of right. massive crisis in so many areas. So you have a right as a leader of a firm to understand <laughs> the world. So right. this is recent, these stories that you're that you're speaking to. Yeah, and, I would, and, and honestly, yeah. I can say that I absolutely relate. We have people in our task force during that George Floyd tragedy. We had literally hundreds of meetings by clients with clients, most of whom I have to say were like, goodness me, we have to step up. Mm. Um, but I think the notion of not really understanding what's going on in the world and not being ready for change is something that everyone's just going to have to grab a little bit more, a little bit more realistically. This is not changing now. I don't think that we expect companies and people to understand the world they're in and understand how to make change and understand how to contribute to no. positive moves so that everyone that they are reaching out to both commercially and in marketing and in communications can say, okay, I can relate to this brand. I can relate to this company. I trust you. And when you trust a company, you're going to buy from that company. So there's actually sound commercial reasons why people need to Agreed. step up <laughs> and do this, right? So yeah. onto the positive, you've had I mean, I want to know what it was like walking into the White House because obviously that's an <laughs> extraordinary milestone and this may be one of the things that you answer me with. But we we see so many people on screen and we see so many people that's not in real life. So my question is, in real life, who's the most inspirational person you've ever had the yeah. benefit of spending time with? Um, my husband. Oh, that's so cute. It, I mean, it's true. For me, I got married later in life. Um, you know, I got married when I was 40. And my husband is this beautiful walking paradox of masculinity and gentility and artistry and logic. And um, not born in this country and raised in this country. And English is his second language. And I'm a professional communicator. And when we got together, <laughs> it was as if we were just born to be each other's person, right? I mean, we communicate in depths and ways that... He's my favorite human. So as I was <laughs> thinking about that answer, it usurps any famous person, president and, and otherwise, because um, he also showed me a path for the impact of toxic masculinity on men and especially men of color who grew up in patriarchal societies where that was um, really a 
devastation to his growing up as well, just like my low self-esteem as a girl growing up in this country was impacted. So um, anyway, just infinitely right partnership, but also a really great living reminder of good humans. And he's just one of the best. You know that though. <laughs> Come on, Jess, there must be something he does that drives you bats, okay? Oh, of we course. know that he's a beautiful human. I adore him. I love that yeah. he loves you the way he does. But come on, he does. He must irritate you once All right. in a while. I'll, I'll tell you, the, the deal is my husband leaves every cabinet open as he walks by. So it's literally a landmine walking through kitchens or cabinetry area. Like he can't close a closet door to save his life. There you go. That's There's my dirty. to his professional career that maybe he doesn't think the doors are good enough as a, uh, as a woodworker. As the most extraordinary yeah. woodmaker, craftsman yeah. of such a stellar level. Maybe he's just not happy with the doors, no. Jess. You have to change he's them a, all. I know. He's a true artist. He makes handmade wood furniture. And so his brain is always in the crafting. He's He's distracted, but I will tell you, I've knocked my head a couple of times in the kitchen after he's been in there because it's, you know, silverware drawers are open now. I mean, he's, we have all the same things everybody has. We just, I think because we have life under our belt, came into this relationship with a different intentionality. Yeah, you're beautiful together. And I think you're both very grateful and you've achieved success against quite hard challenges. You had a hard yeah. time during COVID. It was, it yep. was not, not easy. And I think that, You've done so much work on yourself that you're, you know, you've you did the work before you met him, right? Which is yeah. where we, as grown ups, uh, <laughs> we make better relationships the more lessons that that we learn. Vision of truth. Can you see the future? Can you change the future now? When we look forward, Jess, and you think about how this is going to roll out, the areas of empowerment, the area of being better in society, the the fact that it took you a while to get into this rhythm where your personal life and your professional life, not to jinx anything, but as you've worked for it, so I'm not, it yeah. hasn't come easy to you, but it's in a beautiful place. How do you see the vision going forward? And especially for Gen Z, for mm. that generation that I'm so invested in, both sort of personally and professionally, we know that they're, yeah a generation unlike any other. They're asking questions. They want transparency. They're kind of pretty pissed off at the state of the planet. They're kind of yep. extremely realistic about the companies they work for, uh, the companies they buy from, um, and yeah. who they recommend and how they recommend. What do you think is going to happen going forward for that generation? And how mm. is empowerment going to sort of move over the next few years? Well, I will say from the lens of female empowerment or women's empowerment that I work in, I think Generation Z demands that we focus more on the problems of the world and less on the woman. I think we've placed a lot of burden and emphasis on the responsibility of empowerment coming from the individual. And I think this generation points us to the systemic imbalances, right? And and they're there to, to shift that. They're our largest voting block. They're our most diverse generation. Um they also don't dream of labor in the way that we were growing up thinking about work. So they're going to challenge and change the workforce because they are not interested in climbing the corporate ladder. They are interested in a more flat hierarchical system, right? They're interested in equity and it's built into this generation. They're obviously digital natives as well. So their entire experience has been democratized from the get-go versus ours and as we've been adapting. 
I, you know, in the work that I do, I, I look a lot at how they're already changing leadership inside of businesses. You know, they're leading and and challenging a lot of the conversations in the employee resource groups inside businesses if they happen to work for large companies who have those. I also look at the challenger brands they're starting, Jackie. You know, they're really looking at giant legacy brands and saying, yeah, that's a category I want to disrupt. There's a way I can do business in a much more sustainable climate-friendly way, and I can have more equitable work-life balance, and I'm going to do it. And so I I think they're innovators by nature. I also think they have us as their parents, right? You're, you know, you're raising Zs, I think, at this point, right? Are the girls Zs? Yeah, they're on the uh, higher end coming. of Zs, one right? One is, and one's just coming one out, is. 26 and 21. Okay. right. So they're on that cusp between, right? And I think we have to remember that idealism, optimism, activism isn't only for Gen Z, right? Our Xers have it. Our millennials definitely have it. And we're raising those kids. So I think the future for me, for this generation, looks intersectional and collaborative. I think what we need to think about from a brand perspective, too, is it's going to be collaborative. It's not going to be up for one brand to change the world. It's going to be up for a consortium of similar industry and maybe cross-industry folks to come together with bigger solutions for the issues that are there. That's the way Gen Z thinks. They don't think in the binary either or. They think in the collective, we, yes, and, like, how do we build this together? That's a different business mindset. You know, we have 140 and it's growing Gen Zers in Edelman who've kind of grown, joined our Gen Z squad. And there are go-to people who we check everything that we're doing with Gen Z, uh, you know, touch base with them. And they're involved in all kinds of business presentations right now. And there's such a transparent, immediate way of communicating with this cohort. I love it. But they also all have side, a lot of them have side hustles. And I sort of love that. It's not just this career choice of I do my job, this is my everything, this is my life. Because actually they make their, their they make each thing richer because they've got other things going on and because they're yeah. living a life. They're not having home and work, they're living their life. It's also interwoven into each experience, feeding the other experience and coming much more as a whole person, living a whole life, doing whole things. And I don't really understand why it took so long for this to happen because I look at how this generation behaves. I think that's so much more sensible and so much more healthy and so much more interesting for people to live their life like that. Why did it take so long for this to happen? Why will my generation, and I'm a lot older than you, we were stuck in this very rigid way of living. Like, what were we thinking? Why did we do that? I think this is about the evolution and the revolution though, Jackie. I think the pendulum is swinging. You know, I mean, I think it's taken our aggregate experiences of realizing that the imbalance of work life isn't working, making us sicker, not making us happier. Then we raise kids who see that, you know, millennials lived through a massive recession, watching their parents lose everything, rebuild everything. Financial insecurity and instability was a big motivator for them. And now we're looking at Z integrating all of those elements together. And just wait till we get to alpha, right? Get to our like under 13 year olds right now, right? Who understand inherently the power of influence and technology and multi-dimensional ways of being in the world. So I think for part of us, it's like, it's just the evolution of us learning and growing. And it's the revolution of what I hope this generation brings to not just the workforce, but to the world. We need this generation and they, and they know that we need them. And I think they're going to step up for it. They already are. I 100% agree. The impact we can have, you know, like this generation 
totally understands that they can have impact on the planet, they can have impact on the world, and they kind of make, they're making decisions guided by how effective can I be to make things better. Touch of truth. A story that affirms a personal impact on the planet and people because of the truth they shared. Do you think that you have something that you can share with us, given that you've been, it's probably a, it's probably an easier answer for you because your career has been in the place where you've had impact on community and impact on how people then start to feel about themselves, women in particular. What's the story that you think, goodness me, that young girl of 12 who <laughs> believed that she could make a difference, that you look back and you think, ye gods, that was a moment for me. That was a moment mm -hmm. that my younger self would have said, that's fantastic, Jess. Yeah. I bring my younger self into every single meeting I have when we talk about <laughs> representation. Sometimes I even revel in showing a picture, a very embarrassing 12-year-old picture of little Jess who didn't feel pretty enough, didn't, you know, see stories of her friends in the media, didn't um, understand the power and the creativity that was in her hands to, to craft. And I think now the moments of truth that I have are are really actually about being a student of my own life. I believe very, very deeply that the relationship I have with myself is the most important one I'll ever form. It's what it's what brings me to all of the relationships in my life. And that's the one I neglected for so long. And I think so many, and I'll just speak generally, I think so many women and people can do that because we're always living to the future state of whatever we think is going to make us happy. And so the moments of truth that I get now are insights to wisdom learned from mistakes made and failures experienced and, you know, heartbreaks and um, the tougher moments. I do learn from the great moments, but I think honestly, the real lessons come for me in when things didn't work out that way. So those moments of truth come in retrospect, but I become a student of them so I can integrate them. And I think that's what I perhaps am most proud of in in resurrecting from that 12-year-old who thought she had no power and control over those things, like reminding her that we've made this all up, baby girl. Like all this career has been made up. All of these moments have been an aggregate of things that you love to do and that have challenged you and helped you grow. And when I can give myself that perspective, uh, she and I then become more powerful together, that inner, that inner girl in me. How many people do you think you've touched around the world? If you bundle up the Dove oh work, the Mattel work, the Nike work, it's millions, right? I would I would guess so. I think what's I think what's most gratifying though are and I have a whole folder here in my uh, in my desk in my office of I print out notes or emails or comments that I get from real people who take the time to write in to say. I love Barbie's new body and new hair texture. That looks like my daughter's or obviously so many notes from young people who've gone through our workshops we created for Dove or, you know, folks who are moved by some of the other campaigns that I've been a part of. I keep those close to me because I want to remember, again, that like young girl. Um, and for me, it's like, I don't know, it's like, you know, planting seeds. It's like the Hamilton line, right? Like planting seeds in a garden I won't see grow. For me, this is an aggregate long game. You know, I want to leave the world, the industry, the space that I occupy better than how I found it. And that's how I measure my success now. And that's changed. I mean, clearly that's changed. That was not how I set it out to be. 
but it's a big guiding principle for me now. I'm so delighted to have had the chance to talk with you, Jess. And I think what we've learned is this incredible conversation around the empowerment paradox. We've got stories about people who are achievers and liberators, but we've also got stories about people who are restrictors and recessives. And the battle is to go on the side of good, right? Not to go on the side of the restrictors. So food for thought and an amazing, truthful response. I love what our producer Andrew says about this show, which is there's no agenda to push, just the truth to be told. And I think we got that from Jess. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper. Follow us at Touch of Truth Pod.